Hi. Welcome. My name is Vanita Jones. I'm part of the teaching team for Women in the Word, and I can't think of a better place to be today than right here with all of you doing the study of the tabernacle. And I'm pretty sure all of you are very excited. There are no cubits. <laughs> Were you excited? You didn't have to convert numbers and, and measure things and talk about wood and all this stuff. We got to talk about clothes for an entire week. <laughs> and God, God ordained it. We were supposed to study it this week. So, yes, it was good. You know, the study of the tabernacle might have been a little difficult on occasion. But I hope that you've seen it as insightful like I have. I think it's been so insightful as we look at all the different details that God put into the blueprint of the tabernacle. You know, studying this about the tabernacle has taught me three distinct things. First, it's taught me that nothing about God's design is random or haphazard. It's very well thought out and it has great Every detail has great meaning and great purpose. And I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope. Especially today as we look out and see all this chaos around us in the world. It just tells us God is still in control. He is in charge of this. Secondly, I'm also reminded that my Heavenly Father that created everything seen and unseen, He wants to dwell with me. That's huge. Now, this isn't a completely new thought to me, but I've grown to have a deeper and more intimate understanding of that truth, just how much he wants to dwell with each one of us. You know, when God designed the tabernacle, he wasn't just making a place for the Israelites to worship him. He intended for the details of the tabernacle to point the Israelites and us to one who was coming Point us to Christ, who would come to be the once and for all sacrifice so that we could dwell with Christ or with God through eternity. Thirdly, I've learned that God is a master designer. Now, over the last few weeks, we've seen he's a master interior designer. Everything he put in this tabernacle was well thought out. Everything he designed was beautiful and had a purpose and easy to use. But this week... We learned he's a master fashion designer. And that was evident in the beauty in which he designed the garments for the priest who would be caring for the tabernacle and representing the people of Israel as they served God both in the courtyard and inside the tabernacle. Now, I read some fashion quotes I thought would be appropriate for this week. Most of them weren't appropriate for this week. But I did find one. It was by a fashion designer named Lorenda Mamo. Never heard of her. But she said this, says, every great design begins with an even better story. Now, I'm not sure what the story was behind her fashions. I looked some of them up. And after seeing those, I'm not even sure I want to know the story behind them. <laughs> a little odd. But I thought her quote could possibly have been borrowed from the master fashion designer of all times, God the Father. But I think her, his quote would have been more like this. It would have said, every great design starts with a great story and ends with an even better story. See, the story of God's design is a true story about God, the God of heaven and earth, who 
who created the world and everything seen and unseen. One who wanted more than anything to dwell with his people. It's so much so that everything he's done for us has just been so he can do that. And to make sure that we knew how much he loved us, he wrote a book about it. It's a book he wrote that tells us of his great love for us. And a book, by the way, that has sold more copies than any other book ever written. And it holds a title as the most read book of all times. This book, the Bible, is based on a true story. And it's of God's pursuit of his creation. And how he has pursued them since the beginning of time. Way back in the, in the garden, he started it. And he, and he wanted to make a way for a holy God to dwell with sinful men and sinful women. In fact, the entire Bible, starting in the, in the garden, and then the Israelites with the tabernacle, and then he sends his only son to die for us so we can dwell with him. And guess what? If you do like me and read the end of the book first, you find out that he's even one in Revelation, and he's planned out our future so we can do what? Dwell with him all through eternity. But who knew it? God is a fashion designer. Now, I have to tell you that I am the last person that should stand up here and talk about fashion. It has never been my strong point. In fact, fashion causes me a great deal of stress. If you want to see me freak out at any given moment, just ask me this question. So what are you going to wear? It causes me this turmoil. Even as a young girl, I knew that I truly didn't understand fashion trends. I can attribute that mostly to my two fashion critics, my two older brothers. They were the worst. On any normal day for me as a young girl would start out with me laboring over what I was going to wear. And I'd spend way too much time in front of the mirror. And I'd be trying to make this decision between wearing something that was cute and comfortable but would yet allow me to play football at recess. <laughs> it was so stressful. And then finally, I'd land on that outfit. It was perfect. And I'd race downstairs. And my two brothers, who made their fashion decisions by what smelled the least or was closest to them on the floor, were already there eating. And they would look up just long enough to say, you're going to wear that? <laughs> or the other one would just laugh. And they'd start back with their breakfast, moving on. Flash forward 45 some odd years, guess what? It hasn't changed. I still am very insecure about fashion. And my brothers, every time I see them, they say, you nice sweater. Wow, did you look in the mirror? They always got some comments still to say to me, which makes me so insecure all the time. Now, most of the time, I'm striving in fashion to be somewhere between kind of trendy a little bit, but comfortable. And then I don't want to fit in with the late night crowd at Walmart. I want to be right in here, somewhere, so I don't stand out too much. You know, I, I think that you could call me the fashion trend closer. Because I can guarantee you, I watch fashion trends, and about the time I finally think that's one I can get on board with, I'll go buy a couple pieces of it, throw it in my closet, wear it out, and on the way out I see the newest Glamour magazine with another fashion trend that I've completely missed out on, and mine's out of date already. So if you ever see me wearing the latest fashion trend, put your money away. <laughs> Don't go buy any more of it. It's going out. It is already on the way out. In fact, save that money and you can pay me to shut down all those trends you don't like. 
There are a lot of them right now that need to be shut down. But you know, God's fashion trends are perfect. His design is perfect. You know, this week we read about God's design for the priestly garments. And in the first two verses of Exodus 28, we see that God's fashion trend is a classic. It never goes out of style. It's it's more classic than even the little black dress. Let's look at it in the first two verses of Exodus 28. It says, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. See, these two verses tell us that God wanted the priest to be dressed in glory and beauty. And it says that he designed these priestly garments so they would be different. They would be set apart from the rest of the Israelites as they served God. You know, just like a uniform that maybe a soldier wears or a police officer or, or a nurse wears, the garments that the priest wore, would, would, they would wear these as they represented God and represented Israelites before God. It set them apart. You knew their job. What they put on every day let others know exactly what they were going to be doing. That they were going to be representing the Israelites before God and serving God by caring for the tabernacle. Now, we can skip ahead a few verses, actually to the very last verse of 28, and we're going to see another very clear reason why they would only enter the tabernacle wearing the clothes God designed for them. Skip ahead to uh, 43, and it says, and they, shall make, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. This verse says that these priests, if they enter the tab- tabernacle wearing anything else but their priestly garments, they were going to die. I mean, that alone is a good enough reason to make sure that, that priestly robe and everything was dre- pressed and ready to go the next morning. They woke up to go to work. You know, I read another fashion quote. It was by a New York Times fashion photographer. His name is Bill Cunningham. And it says this. Fashion is the armor to survive the realities of everyday life. Now, I can guarantee you this man never thought that his quote would show up in a women's Bible study on priestly garments. But I think it's a very fitting quote for what we are studying today. Especially after we read verse 43 that tells us that in order for these priests to survive every day as they worked in the tabernacle... Remember the tabernacle was a place where they would daily have to deal with the sins of uh, the man's sins. It was an everyday reality for them. And to make sure that they survived, God made them protective clothing to wear. As they, and he instructed them to wear it every single time. Their clothing was important to them as to the survival is as the camo that the, the soldier wears. When he goes out to fight our battles or, or the, the bulletproof vest that the police officer wears when they're on duty or, or the nurse that wears the, the, the gown and the mask and the gloves as they're caring for the sick. Just as important. You know, most instructions given in Exodus 28 describe the design of the garments for the high priest who at the time of the tabernacle was Aaron's brother was the Aaron, the brother of Moses. But there are a few verses that describe what the regular priest would wear. And today, for the sake of time, we're going to spend most of our time on the 
high priest garments. But let's take a look really quickly at verses 40 and 42. And then I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 39. And these are going to give the instructions for the, the regular priest garments. It says um, in verse 40. Whoop, I was on the right page to begin with. I have to flip around a lot today. Uh, for Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And then 42 says, you shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. And then if we skip forward to 39 and read 27 through 29, it says, They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twine linen, and the sash of fine twine linen, and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, embroidered with needlework, as the Lord had commanded Moses. See, these garments for the priest would include four different pieces of clothing. And we have a slide I can show you that um, shows these. This is what the regular priest would have looked like. They would wear these undergarments, a coat, some may call it a tunic or a robe, and then there was a cap, some call it a turban, and all would have been made of fine twined linen. Now, fine twined linen was um, a linen that was... You were, didn't take dye very well. So you can almost assume when it says fine twine linen, it's white, okay, because it didn't hold the dye very well. Now, unless there are some very poorly placed commas in here, we can assume that these were white, and we can assume that because the only color we see is when they mention the design of the fourth, which is a sash, and it's to be made of fine twine linen, but it's going to have blue, purple, and scarlet threads and embroidery work done needlework done to it so it would have its color. Now the rest of the verses in Exodus 28 describe the garments God designed for the high priest. And for the sake of, the, of time today, we're not going to read all of it. We'll be skipping around a little bit. But the garments of the high priest included a couple of the same garments as the regular priest. In all, the high priest would wear six different things. First, there were the undergarments, same as the regular priest. The inner white robe that we just saw. And then... The inner white robe would be the same as the priest. Now, these fine twine linens were white, and they would remind us of the righteousness of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, because white stood for purity or righteousness. And this is where things get a little bit different after this. There would be a blue robe that you see up there. There would be a sleeveless garment called the ephod. There would be a jeweled breastplate, and there would be a white turban on his head. So let's start out today. We're going to start with the blue robe that you see there. And I'm going to read about this robe in Exodus 28, starting at verse 31. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it, with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and it shall, its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Okay, this robe was to be woven of one piece from top to bottom. It was have, supposed to have an opening in the center of it with a woven band around it so this wouldn't tear. This is for the head they put over their head. This type of garment was very difficult to weave, and it would have required a highly skilled weaver to accomplish it. It was a seamless piece of clothing, and in that day, a seamless piece of clothing was highly valuable. 
Very few people had them. No one could afford to have a woven piece of garment from top to bottom with no seams. Now, this type of robe or tunic is described again in the New Testament. If you'll look at your verse sheet, it's John 19, 23 through 24. It said, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for the, each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it. They knew it was valuable. But they cast lots for it to see whose it would be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and my, for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did just these things. Now, the part of the verse that says they divided their garments, and by my clothing they cast lots, that comes from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. That's actually Bible prophecy that foreshadowed the crucifixion of Christ. So the same type of finely woven tunic or robe was worn by the high, that was worn by the high priest is also worn by Christ, our high priest. And he wore it as he made that once and for all sacrifice for all of the sins of mankind. You know, that supports my theory that nothing in God's design is random or haphazard. But rather, everything he designs has meaning and purpose. The next thing I think supports that theory is this. They were to place bells, gold bells, and finely woven pomegranates around the hymn, alternating them, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, all the way around the hymn. I have a picture of this right here. It would have looked something like that. These two things, bells and pomegranates, were not only for decoration. In fact, both of these items held great meaning to the Israelites. We've learned that the use of gold represents deity. I think we've talked about this before. But there's something very interesting about the use of gold in these bells, in the design of these bells. See, gold is not the usual metal used to make a bell. In fact, it's not the usual metal you would use to make any type of musical instrument at all. And the reason is because gold is such a soft metal that it makes very little sound when you strike it, like in a bell or when sound resonates off of it, like in a musical instrument. So it wasn't the, wasn't the type of metal that would have been chosen to make bells at the time. So when these bells combined with being tiny and made of gold, it would have been this very subtle, gentle, quiet sound. It would have sound, been sound so distinctly different from all of the rest of the loud, clanging, chaos around them in the world it would be peaceful it would be calming and when you team it up with the blue robe because what did we learn about blue the color blue represents heavenly quality these bells would have been almost a heavenly sound to the israelites see the bells on the robe of the high priest would have been constantly reminding him of his purpose and that his worship was a sweet sound to god but for the Israelites outside the tabernacle, I think it would have been a reassurance that their high priest was inside that tabernacle and he was representing them as, they, as he worshiped God and he interceded on their part. You know, they were also instructed to make pomegranates with blue, purple, scarlet wool twisted together. And they were instructed to place them between each bell like it showed. Now, this is not the only time we've read about the use of pomegranates in Scripture. King Solomon actually incorporates pomegranates into the design of the temple that he builds later on. 
And in the Torah, the Jewish Torah, the pomegranate is described as one of the blessed fruits. One of the blessed fruits of the land that, that they promised them by God. Look at how that promised land is described in Deuteronomy 8 on your verse sheet. It says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive, oil, olive trees and honey. See, the pomegranate used in the Bible is a symbol of blessing. Now, not so much personal blessing, but rather it was a symbol of one who was more concerned with blessing others than they, were, than they are with themselves, or being more concerned with themselves. They were more concerned of blessing others. And here's why the pomegranate symbolizes that. You know, most fruit are made up of a lot of pulp and a few seeds. Think like an apple. Okay, and, and the pulp is the part of the fruit, the, the part that the fruit uses to kind of sustain itself. It feeds itself. The seeds are the part of the fruit that the fruit, fruit uses to bring about new fruit in the world. So in a sense, the seeds are all about blessing others by making more fruit. Now the pomegranate is unique, of unique fruit, because it's made up mostly of seeds and very little pulp. And I have a picture of it there. You can see it's almost all seeds. There's very little pulp. So they say that the pomegranate symbolizes a fruit with an unselfish desire to bless others and without being concerned about itself and its own needs. And, and to top it off, look, if we can put that right back up just for a second, Mindy, on the pomegranate. It has at the very top of it a king's crown. And I think it just tops it off perfectly. See, for the high priest, the use of pomegranates on the hem of the robe reminded him that he wasn't to lose sight of his mission to place blessing others before his own concerns or his own needs. And the details of the high priest's blue robe point us to Christ, who was gentle yet powerful like the bells, and who put aside his own needs as he died our death on the cross so that we could be saved. And it should be a reminder to us that we should put our needs aside. You know how we do that? We do that by placing those needs at the feet of Jesus. And when you do that, it frees you up to be concerned about blessing others and not being concerned about your own needs. That's what we're called to do. Now the next garment, which was placed over top the blue tunic, the robe, was a sleeveless garment. It's called an ephod. Let's read the instructions given to Moses concerning the design of the ephod. Now, they actually are recorded in 6 through 14. I'm going to read 6 through 12. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall, shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. 
See, the ephod was made of gold, uh, blue, purple, and scarlet threads and fine twined linen. And if we skip ahead to chapter 39, verse 3, we see uh, some interesting facts about the gold thread. It says, they hammered out gold leaf and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and scarlet yarns and into the fine twined linen in skilled design. So see, those, those gold threads were not actually just gold thread. They were actually real gold threads. They weren't just dyed gold. They actually hammered out a piece of gold till it was paper thin, and they cut it really tiny to make these threads. And I watched a video of this to, to show how it was done, and they would take those thin pieces of gold and they would twist them together to make a thread. And that's what they twined inside this. I can't imagine. I do needlework. I can't even imagine how difficult that had to be to use as they, they made this ephod. They had to be highly skilled as they did it. You know, this element, the gold woven into the fabric, this element of the ephod reminds us that when we look at God's creation, we can see elements of his character woven throughout everything we look at. And he's what holds everything together. When you look at a sunrise, when you look at uh, the, the mountains, when you look at, at anything like a newborn baby, there's an element of God's character just like it was in the ephod, woven into everything he creates. Now, the ephod would, would have been made into two pieces. It was at front and back. And it was held together on each shoulder by a jeweled clasp. And at the waist, it was held by a beautifully designed girdle. And I don't think Spanx. It's not like that at all. It's more like a big wide belt that would have gone around their waist. Now, the significant thing about the ephod was not so much the fabric or the colors. It, were, it was actually the jewel clasps at the shoulder. Now, these jewel clasps were to be of onyx, and they were placed in gold filigree settings. And on the onyx, they were going to engrave the names of each son of Israel in their birth order, six on each shoulder. We have a, we have a picture of something that would have looked like maybe. These two onyx stones engraved with 12 sons of Israel and setting on the shoulders of the high priest would remind him every time he went into the holy place that he bore the names of the tribes of Israel before the Lord. He was their representative before God. And in keeping in the character of the priest, he carried them on his shoulders all times. The design of the ephod reminds us of Christ, our high priest, who represented us as he bore our sins on the cross so that we could be made righteous before God. Look at what it says about this on, on your verse sheet, 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now the next item we'd see on top of the ephod would be a beautiful jeweled breastplate, and it was to be placed on top of the ephod and held on by the clasps. Let's look at um, this part, read this in here. It starts at verse 15. I'm going to read from 15 to 22 and then skip over to 29. So starting at 15. You shall make a breastplate of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and a fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and it shall be as square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stone, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncles. 
shall be the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, jacinth, an agate, and amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, onyx, and jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like the signets with engraved, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And then we go over to verse 29. says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastplate of judgment, you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Okay, like every other priestly garment, there are several different images of the breastplate of, of that, Moses, that Moses was instructed to make. Many of them I saw look like a solid piece of gold with the jewels set in it. But clearly the scripture tells us it was not like that. It said that it was made out of the same fabric, and then these, these stones would be attached to it with gold filigree. So I think the breastplate would have looked something like this, closest to what I could see scripturally. The breastplate was, was to be constructed using the same woven fabric as the ephod, and it was to be made in the shape of a rectangle and then folded over to form a square. And then they would sew three edges of it, which would make a pocket. Now, the breastplate was to be held in place by golden chains attached to the onyx clasp at the shoulders, like we discussed earlier. And then there would be blue, lace, or blue ribbons that would hold it to the ephod at the bottom. And so evidently, there were these golden um, kind of rings crafted into each corner that everything would hook to. And then on top of that breastplate, there would be these 12 beautiful stones. Um, with that, there would be three jewels and four rows. And they would each have the name of, each one would have a different name of the tribe of Israel. And they were set in gold filigree. See, on, the stones on the breastplate represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And by wearing this breastplate, the high priest would bear the 12 tribes of Israel before the Lord continually as he worshipped in the tabernacle and sought God's guidance on their behalf within the walls of the tabernacle. Now, the high priest carried the people of Israel over his heart as he interceded for them. Christ, our high priest, he sits at the right hand of God. It's even better. And he bears our names there, and he intercedes for us on our behalf, sitting right at the right hand of God. Now, in verse 30, we read these really strange thing about this Urim and Thummim. What is this? Well, I can tell you there's nobody really knows exactly what they look like. There were some really far-out commentaries on this that I couldn't even read all the way through. But apparently, they were, were placed inside this pocket that was made on the, the breastplate. They'd be held in there. And they would be possibly, the consensus was they were two precious stones, maybe gemstones, and they would have been about the same size, about the same shape, but they would have been a different color. It's all speculation. The name Urim means lights, and Thummim means perfections. And I'm going to tell you, that led to all kinds of speculation, but the very few answers. But apparently, these two stones were used to discern God's will for the nation of Israel. So if, if, they, if, if Aaron had to discern something that concerned the nation of Israel, he would... He would speak to God, he'd, he'd talk to God, and then he would pull out one of these stones and 
it would be a yes or no according to which stone he drew out. Now, later on in the Old... It's, this was seen and used in the Old Testament, the early part of the Old Testament. Later in the Old Testament, sometime around the time of King David, the ministry of the prophets, kind of the time when God was very displeased with uh, the nation of Israel, um, he refuses to permit the Urim and Thummim to be used anymore. So they're left without any way to discern God's will. We, of course, don't have Urim and Thummim. I'm completely convinced that if we did, we would already wear it out. Because we wouldn't know, should I buy this? Should I not? Should I marry him? Should I not? Should I take this job? We'd constantly be pulling these things out of our pocket to see if it's right. But you know, we have something even better than two stones. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God. In a time when God's people didn't have his words written down, he provided them a way to discern his will. That's a God that loves his people. He gave them a way to seek him and, to, and a way for them to know his will, just like he's done it for us. For, for us, it's the Bible. For them, it was those two curious stones, the Urim and the Thummim. Now, the last piece of the high priest garment we're going to discuss today is the turban. He wore it on his head. Uh, follow along. I'm going to read um, verses 36 to 38. It says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engraved on it like the engravings of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be in the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. I had a picture of that. I think we've already put it up there once. That is kind of what it would look like. Again, there are zillions of different images of what it could have possibly looked like. I think that's probably the closest. Um, the turban worn only by the high priest was made of fine linen, again, and it was wound around his head in a coil. And on the front of the turban, on Aaron's forehead, attached by blue lace ribbons, there was a golden plate engraved with holy to the Lord. The whole purpose for the Levitical priest was to make men and women holy before God. And therefore, they would be pleasing to God. They would be right with God. So this turban with this engraved golden plate would have constantly reminded them of what God had told Moses in Leviticus 19.2. God says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. See, in wearing this, the high priest was identifying himself with the sins of these people, and, and he brought in their offerings that they were offering to get rid of that sin. And then the same command to be holy is given in 1 Peter. It's given to us in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. It says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. But like the Israelites, we're unable to do this on our own. We needed a high priest as well to intercede for us because of our sin. Jesus, our high priest, also wore something on his forehead that identified him with us. And by doing so, he made us holy before the Lord. Look at John 19.2. It says, And the soldiers twisted a, a, ground, a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Exodus 28.38 said that Aaron, the high priest, would wear the guilt of the Israelites 
And he would take it in with him, and he would do it regularly, meaning he did it over and over and over and over again. You know, like the high priest wore the guilt of the Israelites on his forehead, Christ, our high priest, wore our guilt on his forehead as he died on the cross for our sins. He died in our place. And by doing so, guess what? We can wear a band that says, Holy to the Lord. Because he has made us holy before the Lord. Not just temporarily, like the priest who had to do it over and over and over again. But he did it permanently. He did it one time for all sin. Like Christ, the priests weren't on this earth to only serve themselves. They had been called by God to place serving others above their own needs, like the pomegranates. The priestly garments point us to Christ who came to earth to serve a sinful world by offering himself as a once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And as followers of Christ, we have a calling as well. Look at 1 Peter 2, 9 on your verse sheet. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, we too are called to follow Christ's example. That example he set when he set aside his position in heaven and he humbly came to earth to be our high priest and sacrificed himself for our sins. And when we trust God with our needs, not our wants, but our needs, when we trust him to take care of all of our needs and we're able to set those at his feet, guess what it does? It frees us. It frees us from anxiety and stress of worrying about getting everything we need and everything we want. And we can place the needs of others first and care for them and bless them like we've been called to do. Look at Philippians 2, 3 through 7 on your verse sheet. This happens to be the Jones family mission statement. We actually have it hanging at our front door so we see it when we go out. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in form of man, did not count equality with God to be something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, just because we're called to be a royal priesthood, we don't have to wear all the stuff the priest wore. We don't have to wear this garment with bells and, and pomegranates and a jeweled breastplate, although we do like our jewels, don't we? We don't have to wear a white turban and, and a miter on the front of it because we're dressed in something else. It's a calling that we've taken that's very, very important, just like the priest. And it's not to be taken casually. In fact, it requires us to purposely prepare each and every day. Ephesians 6, 10 through 8 tells us what we should put on each day as we prepare to serve God. But it not only tells us that, it tells us, it tells us why we should put it on. Look at these verses on your verse sheet. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm... 
Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The very first verse of that tells us that as followers of Christ, we should dress in the strength of Christ. We should dress in the might of Christ. That's what makes us strong. You know, I can't believe I'm even going to say this, but I think Bill Cunningham, the fashion photographer, had it right when he, when, in his quote. He said, fashion is the armor to survive the realities of everyday life. Again, I don't think he meant any of that to be spiritual. But I think that Ephesians 6 tells us this very thing, that when it tells us we're to dress in the strength of Christ so we can stand firm against the evil in, in today. And it goes on to say that we do it by putting on the whole armor of God. We put on the belt of truth. And the truth is what we find in his word. The breastplate of righteousness, it's righteousness that we only are able to wear because Christ made us righteous before God. The shoes of readiness, we all love proper shoes. The shoes of readiness, those are the shoes that help us spread the gospel of Christ. The shield of faith that is always before us as we tackle these trials and, and we deflect the darts of everyday life. The helmet of salvation that we wear constantly declares we are holy to the Lord. And the sword of the Spirit, it's the Bible. That's where we find His truth. And last but not least at all is a spirit of prayer. It's prayer not just for ourselves but for others. You know, my oldest son, Taylor, when he was little bitty, he just saw things totally different than the rest of us. One day, we had read this to him because he loves soldiers. He loves warriors. And <clears throat> he came up to me afterwards, very pondering, and, and she could see was, uh, something was really troubling. And I asked him, what's wrong? He said, Mommy, why don't you think, why didn't God tell us to wear something on our back? Oh, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't have a clue. It doesn't say. It's not in there. And he said, I think I know. He said, I don't think we're supposed to, to turn our back on it. We're supposed to stand firm against it. And he put everything in front of us. And I'm like, out of the mouth of an eight-year-old. It was amazing. And I think he's right. We're being called to stand firm against the evils of today. You know, there's one fashion trend that never goes out of style. It's a fashion trend that was started by the master fashion designer who not only knows that the fashion is the armor to survive the realities of everyday life, but he's also the one that designed the armor that we're going to wear to survive the realities of everyday life. See, if, as followers of Christ, we should dress in the armor of God as we stand firm against the realities of living in a sinful world. Please pray with me. Precious Father, your, uh, your words are just piercing, and um, they just touch us all exactly where we need to hear, Lord. I pray that you would take these truths and you would plant them in our hearts, Father, that we would be women that are prepared every day, dressed in your armor, ready to, f to stand firm against all the evils and all the bad that we see around us, so that we would be a light and others would be drawn to the truth that we have. Father, we love your word and we love your son, and it's his name we pray. Amen.